Hi, my name's Lindsay and I'm a member here at Restored Church. If you're new here, welcome. Thanks so much for tuning in. We believe that church is not an event, but a family you belong to. So we would love to offer the opportunity to connect with you. I'd love to be saying this in person, but circumstances have us doing otherwise. So if you'd like to learn more about our church or we can help you in any way, please visit our website, www.restoredtemecula.church. And then you can just click on contact there. We also have a mobile app with resources, including the Sunday messages, information about upcoming events, and other ways to connect. You can download our app at Apple and Android app stores. With that said, thanks so much for tuning in and we hope you enjoy the message. All right, everybody. Go ahead and grab a seat. We're gonna get started here. Man. I'm in. So I was just telling Herrick, um, the AC is working. I don't know if you guys can feel it. Yes, yes, that is worth a round of applause. Um, so we are, you guys know, we're finishing John this morning, okay? 66 weeks going through the gospel of John, this incredible eyewitness account of the life, the death, the resurrection, the ministry of Jesus, God in the flesh, written by his closest friend, John, all culminating with this idea of like John saying, I wrote this so that the reader would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the savior of the world. 66 weeks exploring and learning as much as we can about Jesus. And today we finish. I'm very excited about finishing this. John is probably my favorite book in all of the Bible. If I could just have one book, it would be John. So I'm excited to finish this off. But today we're literally gonna read the, we're gonna go through the entire 21st chapter of, of John, the last chapter in the Gospel of John. Why do I tell you that? Because the AC is working um, and I have to go through an entire chapter uh, and I know you can get really restless when it's hot, but your chances of getting restless are, going, are like way less now. So I'm gonna spend as much time as I need to get through this final chapter. Uh, but I really am looking forward to this morning. If we haven't met yet, my name's Tom. I have the privilege of providing leadership to this church plant as the lead pastor on eldership with my wife, Ebony, Herrick, and Heather Berga. Just such a joy to be part of this community and so glad to be with you guys this morning. But <clears throat> today, today's message is going to focus on the Apostle Peter, familiar name in the scriptures. And if you have been following with us, you know the last time we heard from Peter in the Gospel of John, he blows it big time. Okay, it's the, it's the famous denial of Jesus in chapter 18. You remember, like, he denies Jesus three times over the course of an evening. And it might just be the most infamous failure by a disciple in the entire Bible. It is spectacular in how much Peter fails. But as is the case with Jesus, Peter's story thankfully doesn't end there. What we're going to do is we're going to see that despite Peter's failure, Jesus graciously restores him and brings him back to the faith. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it. John chapter 21. Before we jump into the scriptures, I just want to touch base on this Christian reality that belief is different than faith. Faith is different than belief. They, they, they're intertwined, but they're different, okay? Uh, faith and belief, let me, let me break this down just really quickly, okay? Belief is acknowledging that something is true. Faith, it involves uh, putting your beliefs into action, okay? So it, it, it's like a complete trust in something. It involves acting on what you believe. They're, they're different. I'll tell you a quick story. When I was in high school, my senior year in high school, um, I got into a pretty bad car accident. Uh, I was T-boned. I wasn't driving. I was, the, I was sitting shotgun, so I was the passenger in the car. And a uh, car uh, went through a stop sign or interception. They blew it through a stop sign and smashed into the driver's side of the car. And I, like, blacked out. <clears throat> so I woke up in the car, got pushed up on the curb. It was pretty gnarly. Glass everywhere. And I'm like, I don't know where I am. I don't know what happened. Get out of the car. And... Um, it was weird. It was like, there was friends in the car. I'm like, hey, what happened? Like, and they would explain to me, you know, got T-boned, the whole thing. They explained it to me. And like every two or three minutes, 
my memory would like reset. And I'd be like, I don't know where I am, what just happened? And I literally asked my friends probably five times, hey, what happened? And they'd explain it to me. I'd go, okay, yeah. And then three minutes later, I'd be like, wait, where am I? What happened? And I would ask them. They're like, hey, stop asking. We just told you, you know? It was a pretty, pretty gnarly car accident. What was interesting was when I was a kid growing up, I had a really, really strong memory. So I didn't study in school and I would get A's. Like I would just kind of, if I, if I read something or heard something, I would kind of catalog it and I had it and I would just take the test based on that. And ever since that car accident, I just haven't been the same. Some of you guys are laughing because you know like, oh, well, you'll be in conversation with me and my memory will kind of like, wait, what are we talking about? It still kind of comes up every now and then, but I've never been the same since. Thank goodness I was wearing my seatbelt. If I hadn't been wearing my seatbelt, there's a pretty strong possibility that I would not be here today. You see, I believed in seatbelts. Like, I believed that they were real. I believed they existed. I believed that they existed to provide, like, protection in the event of a car wreck. But belief is different than faith. It requires faith to grab that thing and actually put it on. You tracking with me? Belief is different than faith. Faith requires action. And your actions, they actually reveal where, you're, where you've placed your faith. Faith is not something you muster up. It's something that you place into something else. So it's not the amount of faith that you have. It's the object that you place your faith in, in something. That, that's what saves you. Are you tracking with this idea? I could have been like, hey, I'm wearing shoes. I'm safe in the event of a car wreck. I believe in the shoes, and it wouldn't have saved me. But if I had a little bit of faith, and I actually acted on it and put it, put my seatbelt on, if I had a little bit of faith in the seatbelt, it will save me. Belief is different than faith, okay? I put my faith in the seatbelt when I put it on, and it probably saved my life. So what I want you to see here before I move on is that actions reveal what your faith is actually in, okay? In Peter's case, his denial his denial revealed that in that moment, his faith was no longer in Jesus. But what we'll see is that Jesus has a way of spectacularly, lovingly restoring people, even people who blow it and fail, and it's absolutely beautiful. Okay, so John chapter 21. I want to pray before I read the scriptures. Will you join me? Spirit, would you point us to Jesus this morning? I don't want to. I don't want to blabber in my prayers. I just want you to point us to Jesus. I want you to make us keenly aware of the goodness and the glory and the gracious, loving kindness of Jesus this morning. Please, we love you. We look to you now, and we ask these things in His name. Amen. Okay, so John chapter. Yeah, John chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Let's read together. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. That's like the Sea of Galilee. He revealed himself in this way. Okay, pause for a second. I'm going to read a bit, talk a bit, read a bit. It says, after this. After what? After the resurrection. Okay, so after Jesus' resurrection. Now, prior to right where we are here in John chapter 21... The resurrected Jesus has appeared to all of his disciples except one, except Peter, okay? And like we said before, the last mention of Peter was rough, man, okay? The guy totally fails. The night before Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus goes in front of all of his disciples, his, actually his closest disciples, the 12, and he tells the disciples that all of them are going to forsake him. Not just Peter, all of them are going to forsake him. And Peter's like, hey, Jesus, even if all these other bozos walk away from you, forsake you, like not me, I'm not going to do that. I never will. And Jesus responds to him and he's like, actually, Peter, before the sun comes up tomorrow morning, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter's like, no chance. No way, Jesus. And then you guys know the story. A few hours later, it happens. In fear, Peter's totally afraid. In fear, Peter denies Jesus. And 
Like he fails Jesus in just about the worst way possible. Like a denial. Like if you've ever read Luke's gospel, Luke's gospel describes that Jesus saw it go down. It gives the, like, the narrative that like, it says that Jesus and Peter even make eye contact right after the third denial and the rooster crows. Like immediately after that, they make eye contact. Oh, like sit there for a second. Imagine how Jesus must have felt. Like if, if you had a really close friend and you watched them deny you. Imagine how Peter must have felt. He just, probably the biggest failure of his life, he looks over and there's Jesus watching it happen. So often we depersonalize these stories as if they're a myth. They're not a myth, they're real. Let's keep reading. Verse two, he, Jesus, revealed himself in this way, okay, this is post-resurrection. Simon Peter, that's Peter, Thomas, called twin, Nathaniel from Canaan of Galilee, Zebedee's sons, that's James and John, John's the author of this, and two other of his disciples were together. Verse three, I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. We're coming with you, they told him. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Okay, pause again. You see, fishing, if you remember, fishing is what Peter did before Jesus called him to be a disciple, okay? It was his profession. So you have Peter, he's depressed. He just, he's blown it royally, okay? He's depressed over his failure. What does he do? He goes back to his pre-Jesus life. Question for you. Have you ever done anything like that? Have you ever done anything like that? Do you ever find yourself going back to things that Jesus has called you out of? Like bad habits, bad relationships maybe. Um, one of the things that I see pastorally that I think it's worth talking about because we're coming out of summer, and we talked about this a little bit last summer, but one of the things that I've noticed where this happens quite often is like this idea of going back to things that Jesus has called you out of is the danger of not taking Jesus with you on vacation. Vacation is so important, guys. We, we, we are a people who are like serious about prioritizing refreshment on a soul level, filling your, your mind, body, and soul with beauty and love and grace and the goodness of God, because that actually fills you up. It's the, being able to dwell on his goodness and the gospel of Jesus is actually what motivates you to then be the person that God has created you to be. Loving, kind, all this fruits of the spirit, right? So we're big on rest and replenishment here. But one of the dangers that I see happen somewhat over and over again in the life of different disciples is not taking Jesus with you on vacation. Like if you, like you, you didn't pack him in your suitcase kind of thing, where it looks like this. It's like you leave Jesus at home, you, you, you go on this trip, and you don't engage with him. Like things shift. It's almost like you kind of functionally stop being a Christian for a week or two. And I'm, I'm not casting, I'm not throwing stones. Like I've found myself doing this before. It's sobering. So like instead of orienting our life around enjoying him and obeying him and operating like him, no matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, like we orient our life around entertainment or consuming. Next thing you know, you're drinking too much or you're eating too much and things are kind of getting funky, off track. So hear me, whether it happens on vacation or not, have you ever found yourself going back to the things that Jesus has called you out of? Going back to your pre-Jesus life. That's what's happening here with Peter. Maybe you're like me and you can relate to this. Let's keep reading. Verse four. When daybreak came, remember, they're up all night fishing. When daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore but the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Really quickly, we're going to see he's about 100 yards away. So this isn't like this weird, mysterious thing that they can't discern who Jesus is. This is like he's 100 yards away and I can't make out the details of someone's face. Okay, verse five. Friends, Jesus called to them. You don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered. Pause again. So I want you to see this. Jesus, he knows that these guys have been up all night fishing and that they have caught what? Nothing, okay? And he asked these guys, did you catch anything? He knows, 
He asks them, did you catch anything? Okay, keep in mind, these are ex-professional fishermen. These guys know how to fish. It was their gig, all right? Here's my question for you. Why is Jesus doing this? One of the best things that you can do when you read the Bible is go, why? Why is Jesus doing this? Why does he ask questions like this when he already knows the answer? Because he wants you to admit to yourself, you know, I don't actually like where I am in life. Calling out to the disciples who went back to fishing. I don't actually like where I am in my life. Living life my way actually isn't working. I'm anxious, I'm depressed, I'm lonely, and I've tried to escape it. When we were shopping or booze or porn or another trip or you name it, I've fished all night and I've taken in nothing. Jesus wants us to have a sober awareness of ourselves, friends. That's why he asks questions that he already has the answer to. All right, let's keep going. Next, we're going to see that Jesus offers these guys some fishing advice. Verse 6. Cast the net on the right side of the boat, he told them, and you'll find some. So they did, and they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. The disciple, the one Jesus loved, that's John. I love that John wrote this, and he describes himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. That's John. He says to Peter, he says, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tied his outer clothing around him, for he had taken it off, and plunged into the sea. Since they were not far from land, about 100 yards away, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. Get this picture, okay? When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus told them. So Simon Peter climbed up and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Even though there were so many, get this, the net was not torn. Pause. Do you see what is characterizing Peter in these verses so far? What's characterizing Peter in these verses is this idea of like strenuous effort, okay? Like, He's swimming, right? He's jumping in the water. He's swimming. It says, in fact, he's out swimming the boat. You ever seen a guy out swim a boat? I have not. He out swims the boat. He's hauling in this massive net of fish all by himself. Those of you parents in the room, you ever take your kids to the park and you're like, maybe, just maybe I can get caught up on some like emails or like I can just chill and think for a second when my kids play at the park and every five minutes it's like, daddy, look at this. Daddy, watch me. Daddy, I'm gonna go down the side, all this stuff. That's cute and it's amazing, right? But they want your attention. That's what Peter's doing here. It's the equivalent of, Jesus, look at me. Check me out. I'm hauling the fish by myself. I'm swimming, I'm coming, I'm the first one that reaches you on the shore, like I'm there. I'm hauling this big net of fish And meanwhile, where's Jesus? Jesus is standing on the beach with a breakfast that he's already prepared for Peter. Like it's already there. Question, does Jesus even need Peter's fish? I don't know if you caught it in verse nine. It said Jesus already had fish on the fire. So why is Peter working so hard? See, there's this theme about Peter's life, guys. We see it all over in the Gospels, and it shows up here, and it's Peter's need to prove himself. I won't forsake you like the rest of these guys, Jesus. Look, Jesus, I'm the first one into the water. I'm swimming to you. I hauled in this whole net of fish. Example after example in the New Testament, Peter's relationship to God has been about proving himself, about being better than others. It's pride. But Jesus isn't asking Peter to prove anything. 
He doesn't even need Peter's fish, guys. Instead, he's prepared a table for Peter. And I don't know if you know this, but like this is not the first time that Jesus has done the whole cast your net on the other side of the boat thing for Peter. I'm gonna read you uh, Luke chapter five really quick. If you guys wanna throw that up there, Marshall. Luke chapter five, this is when Peter meets Jesus for the very first time. Okay, check this out. Luke chapter five, starting in verse four. When he, Jesus, had finished speaking, he said to Simon, that's Peter, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Master, Simon replied, we've worked hard all night long and caught nothing. But if you say so, I'll let down the nets. Verse six, when they did this, they caught a great number of fish and their nets began to, what does it say? Tear, okay, keep that in mind. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. Remember that picture in your mind. Verse eight, when, Peter, when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me because I'm a sinful man, Lord. Verse nine, for he and all those with him were amazed at the catch of the fish they had taken. And so were James and John, John's the author, Zebedee's sons who were Simon's partners. Don't be afraid, Jesus told Simon. From now on, you'll be catching people. Some translations, translations say fishers of men. You maybe heard that. From now on, you'll be catching people. You'll be fishing for people. Then they brought the boats to land, left everything and followed him. Does that sound familiar to you? Do you see how that mirrors our passage at the end of John? It's no wonder, like, John sees what's happening here in our, in our original passage, and he's like, that's Jesus. So Peter, what does he do? He jumps into the water, right? He outswims the boat to the shore, hauls in the net of fish. Keep in mind, at that stage in Peter's life, in the story here, this is the guy who failed royally. Spectacular, okay? He denied Jesus, and now he isn't falling at his feet like he did at first. What's he doing? He's performing. He's still trying to prove himself. We talked about faith and belief and how they're different. His faith is in what he does for Jesus, not what Jesus has done for him. Let that sink in for a second, okay? His faith, is, his faith is in what he does for Jesus, not what Jesus has, does, has done for him. So pastorally, in love, this is what gets me every time I read this. This whole week, I'm just asking myself this same question. I'm gonna ask you, what's a better picture of your relationship with God? Performing for God, working for God, swimming, hauling in fish, or enjoying him and his gracious, his gracious provision? like the, the, the breakfast waiting for you on the beach. And guys, hear me. Like, please don't misunderstand what I'm trying to say here. The Christian works hard. This is not about like laziness. The Christian works hard, but not in order to be accepted by God, but because they have been accepted by God. Not to earn his approval, but because they already have it and they love him in response. Not because Jesus needs them to accomplish his mission, but because they want to offer themselves for the world just as he offered himself to them. Are you tracking with me? Yeah? Hopefully. This is profound. <laughs> all right, another thing to note here quickly. They were fishing all night and they caught nothing, right? When were the fish caught? I love this part. When were the fish caught? The fish were caught when they followed Jesus' instructions. Right? Hear me. Success in your life is completely dependent on obedience to Jesus. Write that one down. <laughs> Success in your life is completely dependent on obedience to Jesus. I want you to notice, it was under his instruction that the success came, all the fish, right? And hear me, and not just the success, but the ability to handle it. 
It says they caught all those fish, 153, but their nets didn't break. Previously, when they caught the fish, the nets broke. This time, John thought it was important to mention they caught a ton of fish and their nets didn't break. Not just the success is dependent on obedience to Jesus, but the ability to handle it. They were able to handle the fish, the success, right? So hear me, I know many of us in the room, some of you, you're longing for success in your life. You're desiring for it. You're longing for it. To advance in your career, great. Or even a better career, awesome. You want more influence. You want more resources. You want more money. Uh, owning a home. A spouse to start a family with. All these things. And you want it now. Right now. But listen to me. God loves you enough to keep you from hauling in more than your net can handle. He doesn't want your boat to sink under the weight of all the fish that you can't handle yet. So can I give you the, the, the best definition of success that I can think of? Success in life is being obedient to God. It's simple. Success in life is being obedient to God. And hear me, that includes his timing. Because there are things that your Father in heaven want, desires for you to be equipped, to be developed, to be strengthened, to be matured. And there are some times when catching all the fish that you've ever wanted will sink your boat. And he loves you enough to not let that happen. So friend, is there an area in your life where you're frustrated? You're frustrated, you're taking matters into your own hands maybe, making compromises to get what you want when you want it, where your definition of success is more in line with getting what you want instead of enjoying and obeying Jesus. Because here, I want you to see something in love. I want you to see that the most loving thing sometimes that God does is says not yet to things that your net can't handle. You with me? Blank stares, great. Okay, verse 12, let's keep going. Come have breakfast, Jesus told them. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them. Sound familiar? And he did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Verse 15, when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, Jesus told him. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. Pause again. So after breakfast, right, Jesus asks Peter a question. It's like, Peter, do you love me more than these? Now, when he says, do you love me more than these, this could mean a couple different things. It could be, do you love me more than these things, right? Like the boat and the fish and the nets, his old way of life, right? Do you love me more than these things? Or it could be, do you love me more than these other guys? This kind of debate, biblical scholars go back and forth about which one they think it is. Personally, I think it's the latter. I think it's, I think it's do you love me more than these other guys because... Peter's heart has been so driven by performance and being better than others. Like, that's Peter's, what's going on in Peter's heart. So that's my personal opinion. Now, really quickly, I'm not going to spend a ton of time here, but it's worth noting, there is some nuance here in the Greek. Many of you guys, guys know this, where there's, there's different words, there's different Greek words for the word love, okay? There's some nuance here in the Greek. That's an entire message unto itself, and I am genuinely running short on time. I'm not even going to get there, but either way, Jesus asks Peter, do you love me three times? 
And Peter replies, yes, all three times. But I don't know if you noticed this. Jesus responds to Peter's reply of yes with three different things. Did you catch them? The first one, he says, do you love me? Yes. Okay, feed my lambs. It's the first thing Jesus says. The second time, he says, shepherd my sheep. And the third time, he says, feed my sheep. Feed my lambs, shepherd my sheep, feed my sheep. Okay? All the biblical scholars agree, lambs is like new believers. Little, you know, baby Christians, whatever you want to call it, new believers into the flock. And sheep are God's flock, the church, Christians. Okay? Do you remember when we read in Luke chapter 5, where Jesus first called Peter, right? It looked very similar. He first calls Peter, and he says, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. You're going to be fishing for men. You're going to catch men, this idea of fishing, right? How many of you guys know fishing is different than feeding? Fishing is different than shepherding. Here's where this gets to me. Too often, the church in America focuses almost exclusively on fishing while the sheep are starving, while they need care. Reel them in. Bring them in. Fish, fish, fish. Awesome. Great. Not bad. Wonderful. (laughs) I am a Christian because that happened. You are a Christian because that happened. But Jesus gave the church a mission, a very clear mission. And that's what? To make disciples of every nation. That absolutely involves fishing. But do you know what it also involves? Feeding and shepherding. It involves bringing people into the kingdom and feeding them, teaching them, right, about who God is and what he's done. It also involves shepherding them, caring for them as they grow as disciples. In other words, as they blow it, as they are unperfect, imperfect, as they sin, as I sin, as you sin, Jesus tells Peter not only to fish, but to feed and care for his sheep. So hear me. This applies to us. If we, as God's flock, right, we're the church, Jesus is our chief shepherd. If we, as God's flock, are going to be led by the chief shepherd, we must participate in all three. Because that's that's his direction. That's his instruction. We must participate in all three. Fishing, right? Feeding, which is we feed on what? We feed on God's word, the gospel, right? Jesus is the bread of life. And shepherding, all three. All three, fishing, feeding, and shepherding. Hear me, you guys, you guys, you guys in, belong to gospel community. What a fantastic conversation to have with your gospel community. Like an honest, straight, like guys, what, what's, what, which of these three are we most strong in? Which of these three is our strongest? Which of these three is our weakest? Fantastic conversation to have. Can't encourage you enough to do that. So then, back to our story, after the third time Jesus asked Peter if he loves him, it says that Peter's grieved. Did you catch that? Peter's grieved, why? Because Jesus asked Peter if he loved him once for every single time that Peter denied him. I've heard people insinuate that Jesus is kind of like sort of being unkind here. It couldn't be further from the truth. Like, he wasn't intentionally trying to cause pain in Peter's life. But when we are confronted with our sin and our failures, it will always be painful. (laughs) Always. Some of you need to hear this. Correction is not rejection. Correction's not rejection. I love my daughters. I would do anything for them. I would do anything for them. I'd step in front of a train for them. Like I would lay down my life for them. I love them like a, unlike a love that I have for anybody else. I love my bride like with a love that I have for nobody else. 
the reason I bring up my kids is like, when I correct them as their father, it's not to condemn them. It's not a rejection of them. It's a loving protection of them. Correction is like the most loving thing a father can do. Because if a father never corrects their children, his children, they will do unspeakable wrongs. <laughs> because I don't know if you guys have kids like mine, but they're born gnarly sinners, okay? Making terrible, terrible choices. Just like I was, just like you were. Jesus isn't being a jerk here, okay? It's actually incredibly loving. Incredibly loving. He could have just condemned the guy who denied him. It's incredibly loving. Jesus knows that Peter has always based his worth and Jesus' acceptance of him on his own performance. Jesus, he wants something for Peter. He wants Peter to see that his love and acceptance are not given according to Peter's merit, but as a gift based on Jesus' finished work, okay? He doesn't do it to condemn Peter, to spite him, but rather to restore him. Correction is very different than rejection. You with me? I don't know if you caught this too. I love this. Each time Jesus asked Peter if he loved him, he responded by commissioning Peter. Okay, feed my sheep. Okay, shepherd my sheep. Feed my lambs. It's a commissioning every single time. So Jesus asked Peter the question in love. Hear me. He asks it to you and I as well. Do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than what the world has to offer you? This gets me every time. The love of Jesus on display in this chapter is radical, okay? He's so loving. Do you see what's happening here? He orchestrates an intensely personal reenactment of Peter's original call to Jesus. Like, and then he literally walks him through repentance. I think one of the things that's most misunderstood in the Western church is what repentance is, like what it actually is. He, this is like a master class on walking somebody through repentance. Let's look at it really quick. Friends, do you know what repentance is? We talk about this often, but we need to talk about it again. Repentance is more than, ah, remorse. I'm sorry. That's a small part of repentance. It, 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 it's encompassed in that, but repentance is more than I'm sorry. It's also I'm stopping. Like it's, it's, it's a change of mind that leads to a change of direction and a change of behavior. Are you with me? Like it's taking God up on his offer of forgiveness and restoration. So example, Peter, you've walked away from your purpose and you've denied me. You've gone back to fishing for fish. <laughs> you've gone back. Peter, do you love me? Yeah. Okay, here's an action for you. Feed my sheep. Here's what repentance looks like, Peter. Love me and obey me. Love me and feed my sheep. Re repentance is recognizing misplaced faith. Again, Faith is different than belief. Faith is action, okay? So it's recognizing my actions are determining that my faith is placed in something other than Jesus, right? Repentance is recognizing misplaced faith and putting it back where it belongs in Jesus. How? Through your actions. And remember, it's, faith is different than belief because it requires action. It requires acting in obedience to Jesus in this case with Peter, it was, the invitation was, okay, feed my sheep. Are you tracking with this? I hope so, because this is super, super important. That being said, Jesus' message from the beginning, repent and believe the good news. Repent and, and receive God as king. That means obey him. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Repent. arguably the most gracious invitation that's ever been given to another person. Re the invitation to repentance is so incredibly gracious. And the outcome of receiving that gracious invitation, it motivates a demonstration of obedience, of action, of faith, 
I hope that you're seeing this because faith is so different than belief. Faith is revealed by your actions. I need you to see that this, this entire ordeal that we're reading, it is incredibly gracious. Oh, it's the heart of God on display. Remember Jesus, eye to eye with Peter, the one who denied him. And yet Jesus intentionally and so uber personal, the most uber personal invitation to repent, to redirect your faith where it belongs, Peter. Listen to me, it's God's heart for Peter on display. And hear me, it's God's heart for you too. Because you and I are just like Peter. All right, we're almost done. Keep reading. Verse 18. Truly I tell you, when you were young, this is Jesus to Peter. Truly I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. He said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. After saying this, he told him the most gracious invitation, follow me. Pause for a second. Jesus tells Peter here how he's gonna die, okay? And then he invites him once again to follow him. Okay, we're gonna come back to this. This is massive. We're gonna come back to this, but I wanna finish the passage. Verse 20. So Peter turned around and saw the disciple Jesus loved following him. Again, that's John, the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the Last Supper, right? And asked, Lord, who is the one that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? Lord, what about him? Verse 22. Jesus, this is what Jesus says. If I want him to remain until I come, Jesus answered, what is that to you? As for you, Peter, follow me. Get this, a fully restored Peter, right after this, blows it, <laughs> okay? A fully, re if this doesn't give you hope, if Peter doesn't give you hope, I don't know what will, okay? <clears throat> a fully restored Peter still blowing it. He's immediately distracted and envious of John's potential calling, all right? This is one of the things I have seen in my life. I have seen in the life of other disciples. It happens in the church all the time. How easily the people of God become envious of other people's callings. And if we're not careful, we'll get distracted by that and we'll fail to walk in our own. Talk about a strategy of the enemy. Jesus' response, again, so loving. Peter, don't worry about John. You follow me. This hit me big. Felt like the Spirit said, Tom, don't worry about Ebony. You follow me. Because if you're anything like me, when there's a conflict in my marriage, I'm like, well, but she just, she just did this. She was totally like wrong. And that justifies me being wrong, as though that's true. It's like bogus, ridiculous. Tom, don't worry about Ebony. You follow me. Insert your name there. <laughs> Don't worry about blank and how they live and behave and what happens with them. And you follow me. All right, we're going to finish the passage. Verse 23. So this rumor spread to the brothers and sisters that this disciple John would not die. Yet Jesus did not tell him that he would not die. But if, you want, if I want him to remain until I come, what is it to you? Verse 24. Last two verses in the Gospel of John. This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if every one of them were written down, I suppose not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. And that concludes John's Gospel all the amazing things that we've read in John, and he says, that doesn't even scratch the surface. All right, I'll close with this. I wanna call the band up. Those of you guys that are making yourselves available for the ministry, on the ministry team, if you guys wanna come over to the side. Um, I wanna close with one more thing here that I think is important for us. 
So Jesus restores Peter and then he tells Peter, if you remember, he tells Peter how he's going to die. He says, quote, it says, quote, by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. That might sound like really bad news, but it's actually, it's actually kind of great news. <laughs> because Jesus is telling Peter that one day he will make good on the promise to not forsake him. One day he will make good on what he said of, I won't deny you, Jesus. Even, it says, even when people stretch out his hands, right? So even when people stretched out his hands, Peter's, to nail him to a cross, Peter will not deny Jesus. I'm really thankful for church history. Church history tells us that in AD 67, uh, that's about 30-ish years after the resurrection of Jesus. It tells us that in AD 67, Peter was crucified by the Roman emperor Nero. Nasty guy, okay? But before Peter's crucifixion, in my opinion, he was forced to endure something even worse. Like, in my mind, much worse. He was forced to watch as his wife was crucified in front of him. I can't even imagine that. It's not just the psychological pain of knowing what awaits you. I mean, Jesus knew what awaited him and he sweated blood. He was it's intense. So Peter, knowing what awaits him, has to wait while he watches his wife crucified right in front of him. Do you know what his last words were to her before she's murdered right in front of him? Remember the Lord. Get the picture. He's certainly detained, observing his wife being tortured, being nailed to a cross, and he's shouting at her, Remember the Lord! Remember the Lord! Oh, God, it gets me every time, dude. Remember the Lord, like... And then when it finally came time for Peter to be crucified, reportedly he pled with the Roman soldiers that he was not worthy to be crucified in the same way that his Lord Jesus was and that he should be crucified upside down. And tradition tells us that he was. When you examine Peter's actions at the end of his life, it's clear where the man's faith was. His faith was in Jesus, spectacularly even. Here's my question for us. And I think it's so appropriate that John ends his gospel this way. The question is this, how did Jesus turn Peter, a guy who denied him three times in one evening, from a guy whose faith was in his own performance into a man whose faith in Jesus is so strong that he would endure crucifixion. How did Jesus do that? Through Bible study? No. Through practical training? No. Through a deep, profound, personal experience of grace. Through a love that never gave up on Peter, no matter how badly he failed. That's what changed Peter. That's what transformed Peter. And hear me, friends, this isn't just what like Jesus does, it's who he is. 
like Jesus is, right? Jesus is gracious. He doesn't stop. He doesn't turn it off. It's who he is. Peter continually failed Jesus, yet each time Jesus responds with the same gracious invitation, follow me. Don't follow you. Follow me. God said the same thing to me all week. He's saying the same thing to you right now. Follow me. No matter how many times you've blown it, no matter how many times you've failed, Jesus is gracious, baby. It's who he is. And hear me, the enemy, very different. The enemy wants to use your failures against you. He wants you to go back to fishing for fish. He wants you to keep trying to prove yourself in pride. He wants you to put your faith anywhere and everywhere other than Jesus. But Jesus is gracious. And he's loving and he's forgiving and he's faithful and he's kind. And he invites you, no matter who you are or what you've done or what's been done to you, he invites you to do something. He invites you to repent to receive his gracious love and follow him once again. Hear me. That's what the gospel of John is all about. That's why he ends with this story. It's an appeal. The gospel of John is an appeal we talked about. He said, I wrote this whole thing in John chapter 20, right before this. He says, I wrote this whole thing so that you believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Repent, follow him, literally, right? It's an appeal. It's a pleading with the reader to place your faith in Jesus. How? By receiving his grace and love. To repent, to turn away from sin and embrace him and obey him and enjoy him forever. Forever. So hear me. If you only remember one thing, from this entire Jesus's series. If you only remember one thing from this whole series, I want you to remember Jesus is gracious. It's who he is. Let's pray. You're the best, Jesus. You're the best. You're the best. You're the best. I feel like you're telling me to be quiet and let you speak, so I'm going to. You have the floor, Holy Spirit. Thank you for your gracious invitation over and over again. Repent and follow me, repent and follow me, repent and follow me. Thank you that you've placed me in a church family who's so gracious and so kind and so wonderful. I pray, Lord, that you would make us a people filled with faith, trust in you, that's expressed through obedience. If you love me, obey my commands, Jesus said. I pray that if anything would mark our church, it would be radical love and radical faith. Those two things are so connected. And God, will we be people who don't try to muster that up, try to like figure out how to like internally generate that as though it's something that we can do ourselves, but we would be people who prioritize meditating on the reality of your gracious invitation over and over again, calling out to us in personal ways even. I've been, I've been, I can even sense spirit, like you're already bringing things to people's mind 
like thing, like you're literally highlighting sins in people's minds this morning because of your love. Correction is not rejection. Correction is love. It's love to enjoy the kingdom of God, the invitation. So Lord, would you help us to be people who are experts at repentance, like really good at it. Oh yeah, that was sin. I don't want that in my life. I'm out, get it out. Take responsibility for it. Change my mind. That's not true. God does love me. I don't need to operate that way. God is for me. I don't need to operate that way. He died for me. He proved his love for me, his commitment to me, his loyalty to me, and his gracious invitation. What his, 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 um, his, his workings with Peter is the same way he treats me. So Lord, would you solidify our faith as a church? Let us be people who are known for radical love because we've been radically loved. I love you, Jesus. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Amen. All right, friends, what we're gonna do for the remainder of our time is respond to the love of God, the goodness of God. Jesus is gracious. So I hope and I pray that right now for the next, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes, that you're not distracted Maybe the enemy's tempting you to believe that you're defined by your performance, either good or bad. And all the while, Jesus is going, hey, I'm over here. I have a, I have a righteousness that you could never earn. I'll give it to you if you want it. This is a time for us to enjoy him. If you need to repent, do it. God will tell you how. He'll be like, hey, do you love me? Yeah, Here, here's some instruction. Here's how you can repent. What a gracious invitation. Some of you, there's actions that you need to take this week. Acting in repentance, acting in faith, placing your faith back in Jesus. All of heaven is cheering you on. That's actually not failure. Culture will tell you that's failure. It's not. It's victory. It's victory over sin. It's rubbing it in Satan's face because it no longer defines you. You know what does define you? the body and the blood of the lover of your soul who will never, ever, ever let go of you. Peter's proof, we can walk in that. I'm gonna ask you to stand, rise to your feet, and we're gonna enjoy him together. Love you guys very much. Herrick will be up to close us, pastor us in just a bit, okay? six weeks of John. Now I got to put a bow on it. Real, real privilege to do this. Also a real problem. How do you do that? As I was thinking about it, Jesus is gracious. Kind of want to go back to where we started. John 1. It says, this is about Jesus. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And then it says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's where we started. That's where we're ending. The grace of Jesus. How should we live? If this is how Jesus has loved us, how should we live? Well, he tells us in John 10. And he tells us throughout this beautiful gospel. Actually, John 13. I give you a new command, Jesus, to his disciples, and by extension to us, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. The truest expression of being a disciple is faith working itself out in love. That's in Galatians, faith working itself out in love. Faith and love are connected. Tom started this morning's message by talking about that accident that he got in where he wasn't wearing the seatbelt. And I've never talked to him about this, but I actually had, when I was 14, I'll try to keep this brief and get going. I had a, my best friend in, in middle school. Uh, he, he got into a car accident, actually. It was like a surprise party for me and my twin brother, Lewis. It was like my first ever surprise party. Everyone's showing up. Where's Mike? Where's Mike? Where's Mike? He, didn't, he never showed up because he was at the hospital. 
he got, he was in his parents' car on, on his way to my house and they got T-boned. Somebody ran a red light. Mike was not wearing a seatbelt. And he went flying. And he like came to and he goes like this. And there's just blood. Just blood all over his hands. He got messed up really bad. He lived. He survived. That was a weird birthday party, needless to say. And as I was thinking about Tom's story, you know, that story came coming to mind. I'm like, Spirit, why are you bringing this up? And I feel like what, I think what the Spirit was saying to me and maybe saying to us was, you've lived through 2020 and 2021. It was like getting T-boned. It was. Out of nowhere. March 2020. Just T-boned. And for the seatbelt of faith that wasn't on, we went flying. And we have an opportunity now, in light of what Tom taught, in light of what Jesus is saying to us, to say, oh man, there's blood here. There's the blood of responding to 2020-2021 by trying to set people straight. There's the, the blood of relational carnage that's come in light of the last two years. There's just the blood of pain and sorrow and heartache that we've all experienced, that we've lived through. There's this sense too of like, man, living for accomplishment and for success. There's, there's pain that that's caused. There's broken relationships. There's people that feel neglected. There's all these things that have come out of 2020 and 2021. And I feel like we have this moment. We got T-boned. And we're coming to, and Jesus is saying, love one another. Love one another. Be united. That's John 17. John 13. It's the gospel. In light of my love, love one another. Deeply, just as I have loved you work through anything that gets in the way of that. Work through whatever that might be. Like Peter had to be restored. I think Jesus is telling us, feed my lambs. Go get them. Go get people. Teach them. Care for them. And do that for each other. That's the best response to the gospel that there is. And the the culture that we live in presents all sorts of alternatives and Hopefully 2021, we can be like this and be like, let's put that seatbelt back on. Let's get well. My buddy Mike went to the hospital. He had staples in his head. He needed to get well. He's getting care. He got care and all that stuff. But he had a choice afterwards to put a seatbelt on or not. In his case, not wearing the seatbelt weirdly saved his life because he would have been crushed. But it was a wake-up call. The next time, that might not happen. The next time not wearing that seatbelt could kill you. And I think we have an opportunity to kind of just wake up to love. Wake up out of slumber and be like, God woke us up. Let's love each other and be united. Let's work through whatever gets in the way of that. Let's be his people here in this world. He's taken away our sins. He died for us. Let's love each other in the same way. So I'm going to pray. If anything that Tom said today or anything that's happened today resonated with you, where you you're, maybe you're just like you're seeing the, the blood in a sense, of not wearing a seatbelt, maybe going flying and really hurting yourself, go get prayer. We've got men and women on the side that want to pray for you, that want to love you. And I want to just, I want to pray over us. Father, I want to thank you that your son Jesus came, he died, and he rose again to cleanse us, to wash us, to make us a people who are no longer defined by achievement, by success, by what we do, but really defined by the love of Jesus, that we get to build our lives on his love. And as we build our lives on your love, we get more of you. And then we get to be your people in this world. And the light of the world, Jesus, comes into the darkness, and the darkness shall not overcome it. That we'll be a people of light, a people of love, a people of hope, in a divided, confused, anxious world, that we could be his people in it. That's my prayer that we would be a loving and united community, just like Jesus desires, that we love and serve each other. 
and the world. Jesus, help us. Apply these things to our lives. Apply the book and the gospel of John, the beautiful truths of it to our lives. And help us become a people who look so much more like you. Day, day by day, look more like your son Jesus in this world. That the world will take notice. Be like, I want that too. I want what you have. I want your peace. I want your joy. I want your graciousness in the midst of a culture that can't seem to tolerate it. That has no means or recourse for grace, for listening, for love. Would, be, would we be your people? God, we love you and we thank you. It's in your sons and we pray. Amen. Jesus is gracious. He is loving. He is kind. Let's love each other and stick together in this world that wants to rip us apart. We love you, church. There's going to be people over here praying, available to pray, and we'll be up here as pastors if you want to talk to us. We love you. Enjoy your Sunday.